dear friend of the podcast, uh, V.I. Lennon, actually wrote about Australia and New Zealand back in the day. He was fascinated uh, by Australia and New Zealand because he saw them as uh, working men's paradise. And I'm saying men because actually women didn't benefit from a lot of those benefits to begin mm. with. But he was interested in accumulating economic statistics. Um, and we found those statistics somewhere. And essentially, um, in the early 20th century, average meat consumption in Australia, according to V.I. Lenin, was 239 pounds per person. In France, at the same time, it was 77 pounds per person. Even in the United States, it was 150 pounds per person. So the standard of living in Australia was second to none. history is over, the period in which it was believed that liberal democracy was the final form of human government, is no more. In this turbulent age, you need a podcast to explore the contours of the end of the end of history. Welcome to BungaCast. My name is Alex Hochuli in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and this podcast is also Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare in the UK. In this episode, George talks to Shahar Hameri and Tom Choder about a part of the world that seems to have escaped this new turbulence economic growth, high wages, steady if boring politics, Australia and New Zealand seem stuck back at the end of history. George asks them if this is true, and if so, why? The first part of this interview is available to everyone, but if you want to find out what Lenin really thought about Australia and New Zealand, what the Dominion mode of development is, what the chances are for Australia and New Zealand's populists, and how long these countries can keep the steady, neoliberal show on the road for, you'll need to subscribe to this podcast at patreon.com slash bungacast. Also in part two is the after party in which George, Phil, and I discuss whether Australia and New Zealand's political systems are actually able to absorb and respond to people's frustrations, especially as China's slowdown comes to impact these countries' economies. So once again, as soon as you're done listening to this episode, head over to patreon.com slash bungacast for the second part. Yes, I'm delighted uh, to be joined today by Shahar Hamiri, who's Professor of International Politics at the University of Queensland, and Tom Choda, who's a Senior Lecturer in Politics and International Relations at Monash University. And so Shahar normally works on policies of security and development in Asia, and Tom on political economy and global governance. But together, they're going to be co-authoring a book on Australia's response to COVID, which is out later this year. But today, we wanted to talk uh, particularly about Australia, New Zealand, and the end of history, or as some people like to frame it, the end of the end of history. So this was something that we we came up with together, the three of us, to, to talk about the way we were going to frame it. Um, but yeah, so why were you interested in this, in discussing this topic? Yeah, thanks, George. And thanks for having us on, on the pod. Um, so actually, the idea for this came from listening to the podcast and actually from reading your book, because um, um, Tom and I 
we talk quite a lot. Many people say too much, uh, but we talk a lot with each other. And when we do, uh, we're sort of political tragics, both of us, which I think is something that is probably relevant for a lot of people that listen to the podcast. And we do uh, think and talk about a lot of these things on a regular basis. And listening to your podcast, it occurred to me that a lot of the stuff you talk about is not actually happening here. Um, and from my understanding from talking to Tom, it's not really happening that much in New Zealand as well. Now, given that almost all of the elements that you guys talk about in relation to what's happening in other liberal democracies in Europe and North America, or mainly the United States and North America, are quite similar to things that have happened here in, in, in the quote-unquote antipodes, um, I think it begs the question, right? But we didn't actually have a chance to write a paper yet. We're just trying to work through that question, I guess, on the podcast with you, and <laughs> maybe the listeners will have something to say about that as well. No, yeah, I guess um, we do need some Australian and New Zealand representation. We don't want um, to be excluding um, that mm. part of the world from from our end of end of history thesis. But I guess before we kind of get into that, the the meat of of, of that discussion, which um, no, it's great to great to hear that the podcast has stimulated discussions, even if uh, ones which are like this isn't happening over here, and we can we can get into that. So yeah, the political background, I think it's useful just to give um, some of our listeners who might not <clears throat> be as familiar with the quote unquote antipodes, um, what's, what, it's, what it's like over there. Um, so Australia, the lucky country, is this, um, why, why do Australians have this, um, this, this self-conception? Oh, okay. Well, you get into the big questions right from the get-go. Um, well, actually, the term the lucky country originally was um, said ironically uh, by Donald Horne who wrote the book because he argued that Australia actually didn't deserve its luck, um, that um, especially its leaders and its um, uh, industrialists were coasting on the luck of just being what it is, where it is, um, and, and the particular circumstances that it had. Um but it became far less ironic over time, right? I mean, it became something that um, Australians do use as some kind of a, of a brand for, for the country. And look, you know, I mean, we do get to surf a lot more than you guys in the UK, so maybe that's a good reason for it. Um, but maybe something that we'll pick up on uh, during this, uh, this podcast is a little bit about the kind of political economy that we have here, um, which, you know, compared to circumstances in many other parts of the world, is maybe more favorable to a lot of people. So to that extent, maybe that tagline actually does work. I don't know. What do you think, Tom? Well, I think, um, yes, and thank you. And thanks for having us, George. As you know, we are both of us long-time listeners, first-time callers, so very happy to be to be with you. Um, and yeah, it's funny that you pick up on the, the lucky country um, phrase because it is so often used here, unironically. People don't actually realize that it was being used in a critical sense. Um, but I think as we will be talking today, there's, there's, there is quite a specific trajectory for Australia and New Zealand to, to an extent, uh, both in the 19th and 20th century, which sets it apart from many other parts of the, the West, so to speak, um, both in the way that it was settled and the way it developed in the, in the, throughout the 20th century. Um, and in many ways, got a lot of breaks, got a lot of um, lucky breaks when it came to developments elsewhere. That ended up working in in its favour, and Australia is definitely that uh, has got a sense of that. Uh, New Zealand always doesn't feel itself very lucky, and obviously very resentful of the big brother across the ditch. 
um, but also has you know has a very similar trajectory overall, even if at a sort of a, a, a smaller brother um, 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 trajectory. So I think we'll be getting into that because that's quite an interesting part of the story. Yeah. So just to kind of like give listeners a bit of a starting point, like is is it right to take Australia and New Zealand as you know the same? Is it is it a you know is New Zealand a, also the lucky country? Is it an unlucky? Is it the unlucky country? Um, you know, not to get in, not to preempt some of the, I guess, more detailed historical discussion, but um, I, I just have a feeling that some some listeners um, might think New Zealand, you know, Lord of the Rings has, has put it on the map. Can I give that? I'm just revealing my own ignorance and projecting it onto listeners, um, which is a, a neat trick to do. But yeah, I guess um, how would you know, how would a, a New Zealand or a, a Kiwi kind of characterise their country? Unlucky country, moderately lucky, um, derivatively lucky, or in a uh, different kind of way? The, the phrase that we use in New Zealand is God's own, as in God's own country. Obviously, the best country in the world that no one knows about because we're the last end of the world, mm. far away from everyone, and happily happy to be there. Um, so I think in that sense, there is a sort of a, a conception in New Zealand of being a very privileged and very lucky and very... Um, you know, um, very good place to live. Mm. Um, obviously, the Australians are the worst and we hate them. But at the same time, I think you'll be hard-pressed to find two countries that are more similar in the world culturally, um, culture-wise. You know, I mean, the, the movement between the two countries is basically free. You know, I, I'm a New Zealander who moved to Australia 16 years ago and I haven't gone back. Against um, a better judgment. Despite Shahar's best efforts, um, you know, so there's a, you know, our team, sporting teams played each other's sporting competitions. Um, you know, it's a very, very close relationship. Um, it's always the first port of call for whichever prime minister gets elected to go to New Zealand um, or Australia and vice versa. So I think we are, there are certain differences um, in sort of in the culture, but overall, they're very similar country. New Zealand um, sees itself as lucky, but perhaps not as, not so, um, not so confidently. Um, that sort of, you know, cocky, Australian, annoying um, larrikinism mm. that you see, you know, in London after after midnight when the Australians get on the piss. Uh, New Zealanders are much more reserved. You know, they'll be standing in the corner looking staunch and cool and trying to not to draw too much attention to themselves. Or at least that's how they like to perceive themselves. But yeah. overall, there is a perception of being a, 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 you know, a God's own country, a country really that has everything you'd want it to have. And if I can yeah. just come in on that, and I think that is relevant uh, to the story that we were going to be uh, maybe telling today, uh, both countries, um, and that definitely has something to do with their history, have um, a sense of uh, relative egalitarianism as part of public culture, you know, as part of how people engage with each other. Um, that's something that probably stands out um, more than you would get in, in many other parts of the world. So you know, it's entirely normal um, for an Australian. I mean, uh, to, to a great extent, a lot of that is a myth, by the way, but it's not a, like every myth, it's got some grounding in reality. So it's not unusual for an Australian to call their prime minister mate or, you know, just talk to someone right. like that very, very uh, colloquially, you know, without uh, too many airs and, you know, and, um, and so on. Um, and I think that also has some to do with, you know, the, the history of these countries. New Zealand yeah. is quite similar in, the, in that respect. So th that is maybe an element uh, of, of, uh, of the culture that they do share and that does differ somewhat um, from mm. the countries you normally cover um, on the podcast. Yeah, I think we definitely definitely get into that kind of political culture and how that could have, you know, what effect that might or might not have had on, 
kind of events around potentially 2016 in in other parts of the the world which presaged the end of the end of history but to kind of give i guess listeners a bit a bit more political history and you know or account of the political systems maybe in Australia and New Zealand how would you how would you explain um those to us a bit i mean how would you explain it to to me um you know also a commonwealth uh you know we're keeping it commonwealth on this on this um podcast to a certain extent but the um yeah like in like a brit who maybe has some uh some knowledge of the the culture as you've just described it but probably doesn't know as much about the the political system as they as they would like to okay so the australian political system um to some extent like the new zealand political system which i'll let tom elaborate on a bit in a second uh, both of them derive from the westminster system right so there is a house of parliament um and australia has uh two houses which is somewhat like the british system but it's sort of like a bit of a mix between the british um and the american system because the lower house called the house of representative it's made up of uh you know people that are elected in electorates around the country um and um basically the senate is a little bit like an american senate in a sense that every state has the same number of representative uh, and the territories have uh, fewer representative um, senators, but um, they still come from the different states. But that's done more in a form of proportional representation at the state level. And, th- and that's why smaller parties can get in more easily at the Senate than um, in the lower house. But there are two things I think we need to highlight about that system, which uh, make it different from uh, the British and, um, uh, and and maybe some other Westminster system. And that are relevant for our story, although I think more is made of them than there should be. And, and that's the issue of preferential voting um, and the issue of compulsory voting. So let's start with compulsory voting, something that uh, PMC types like to talk about a lot in the Australian context and to explain Australia's uh, quote unquote better electoral outcomes through that. Um, and the idea is that you, you have to vote, you, you cannot not vote. You can come in and put a blank, you know, uh, just just not actually vote, yeah. but it can spoil, spoil your vote, but you have to actually turn up. If you don't yeah. turn up, you get a fine. Okay, so that's what's quite the, different. What's the uh, fine? Is this... Um, it's a few hundred dollars, it? so it's not an insubstantial yeah. fine. Uh, it's not a huge fine. I mean, people can can probably manage, but it is it is a fine, okay? Um, and otherwise, you have, you have to provide some kind of an excuse why it didn't turn up. Uh, and that's very different because mobilizing, bringing out the vote is not a big issue in Australia, okay? Yeah. Um, and then the other thing is preferential voting, uh, which is um, something that I'm not aware of. Um, ex- I don't think it exists in any other country, but basically what it is, you get the ballot paper and all the candidates for that seat are on it and you have to rank them from, let's say they're eight, from one to eight. And if the candidate that you put in one is not in the top two, then your vote moves to the person that is in the top two at that point. So that means no vote gets wasted because Mm -hmm. they get shifted around. Um, And that means that generally the bigger parties have a better chance of winning because generally there will be somewhere ranked up in most people's ballot paper. And that's very different from the first past the post system, which you have in the UK. And then there's federalism as well, which works sort of similarly, but I'm not going to get into that too much right now. So it's a, it's a kind of West Westminster plus some added 
complications in the voting system and, and compulsory voting. Um, That's right. New New Zealand. What's the uh, what's what's the the vibe? Well, the, the vibe's not not too dissimilar. Um, and also, you know, has the Westminster parliamentary sort of uh, heritage that, that Australia does, and so the, the Dominions do. Um, but it's three key differences from Australia, which I think you know we can get get into later as well, and, and the sort of the importance that they have for outcomes. But um, firstly, there's a unicameral system, so there's only one House of Parliament. There's no Senate. There's no House of Lords. It's a very centralized system where you know there's a parliament in Wellington, and that is you know that that basically governs everything. Uh, you know, there's no sort of regional, there's no provincial governments or anything like that. Um, the the electoral system is called is, is different to Australia as well. It's called MMP, mixed member proportional, which is basically similar from what I understand to the German system. Um, it's meant to provide a much more representative uh, parliament. It was introduced in 19, 1996, was the first election that it ran in. Um, and you know, Shahar and I had joked that this was actually New Zealand's Brexit moment where the, the, the population basically you know, did put two fingers up to the political class because there'd been a series of governments elected with through first-past-the-post that were not representative at all of society, got low council votes, but you know, got in most seats. And they passed some far-reaching reforms that were very unpopular. And at some point, this idea was floated of changing the electoral system. And there was a whole commission that came up with the system. Neither party wanted to do it. But through a couple of elections, they ended up sort of goading each other on to put the, put the system through, which would mean, which would solve all the problems of New Zealand um, you know, to make it more proportional, um, to make parliament more proportional representative. And eventually, there was a referendum which all the political class campaigned against, and it won through two stages. Both stages were passed to move to the system because people were so pissed off with um, with the political class. So essentially, when you vote in New Zealand, you get two votes. You get one vote for your local electorate, local MP, just like you would in Australia or most other parliamentary systems. Then you also get a party vote, um, a party list vote. And essentially, each party has a list of its MPs that are not standing for a seat. Um, and they top up the number of, of, of seats that they get in Parliament. So the idea is that the number of seats they have in Parliament is proportionate to their national vote that they got overall. Um, so that was introduced in 1996. And the idea there is that it's more representative. Um, the idea there is very difficult to have a majority government. There's only been one majority government since it was introduced in 1996. And that's the current one with Jacinda, one, uh, Jacinda Dern one during the COVID pandemic. Um, and it's sort of made a coalition government much more common and much more frequent and much more normalized in, in New Zealand. Um, and then the final thing is that there is no compulsory voting. So we don't, you know, we're not sort of, uh, you know, in the business of telling people what to do like we are in Australia. Um, but New Zealand was actually the first nation in the world to have truly universal suffrage, um, which is something that people probably don't know about. You know, it gave all men the vote in 1879 and then all women the vote in 1893 before any other country in the world. So it has a long democratic tradition, um, doesn't feel the need to uh, tell its people to go to the polls, unlike some of the people across the ditch. So it's, Here we um, go. <clears throat> so it's more if you if you want to, you, you, you can do. No, that's, I think that's in, interesting. I, I guess that kind of... Um, you know Westminster starting point and then departures this is you know something we're gonna obviously dig into a little bit more but I also wanted to I mean if that's the kind of the political system and that obviously frames some of the you know some of the the political options in 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 both cases what about the you know in really broad brush terms like 
do you have socialism? Do you have liberalism? Do you have conservatism on that kind of that that model of those kind of George? Who has socialism? Come on. <laughs> well, do you have people who who use the the term socialism um, more than than anything else? No, I guess just like are, are those political traditions the same as you know developed on roughly European model of those being the the you know the three that competed the twentieth century and then the twenty first century being more of a you know collapse of those or how's it? How's it work? The you know, give us a a super potted, you know, political uh, history um, in of these kind of traditions in in both countries, please. Thank you. Well, the first thing to say is that yes, I mean, the traditions are fairly similar, um, and the political system in terms of the parties that are present in that system is very similar to the kind of thing you got mid twentieth century in most liberal democracies in the West, right? So to that extent, it's quite similar. I think if there are some differences, firstly, conservatism in Australia originally, what it meant was more affinity with the British Empire and, and with Britishness. That, that's historically what it meant. Um, that's not really the case anymore, and it hasn't been the case for a long time. Um, but the uh, more contemporary strain of conservatism is more like neoconservatism. Um, and that's, again, not all that different from the kinds of the, what is now known as conservatives in other countries, although far less virulent, um, you know, than than you would find, say, uh, in the Republican Party today or something like that in the United States. Um, so, sorry, just to so what what does this kind of contemporary Australian conservatism look like? In, it it combines. Sort of uh, sorry, yeah, it combines um, essentially more socially conservative positions, uh, but not as socially conservative as you find in the United States. Um, right. So, I guess more like uh, maybe what you would find in Britain. You know, um, that would be considered socially conservative. Uh, so, abortions things that are not really a big deal. Um, religion far less of a big deal. Uh, right. But you know, there are certain ways in which uh, you know there's. Um, Probably uh, a bit more of a preference for more traditional forms of living, but not as not as um, as pronounced as, as, for instance, the the right in the United States. You know, but that's basically the uh, you know the kind of uh, the general uh, gist of it, um, and economically quite quite liberal overall. Although, as as in many parts of the world, maybe that's starting to shift a little bit, and we can talk about that. But historically, there's been a commitment to economic liberalism, um, so that's very similar to uh, new conservatives more generally. Um, and also, there is the element which we're not going to probably talk about too much, which is the attachment to uh, the alliance with the United States. So it has manifestation in foreign policy as well. But that's something that probably we can't really get into. Um, and I guess one other thing to say is that. Um, the Australian Labour Party um, is historically a, a very successful Labour Party, and, and you mentioned socialism, right? It is actually the world's the, the world's first uh, Labour government is in my state of Queensland. That happened in 1899, and then in 1904, Australia had the first national uh, federal Labour government of any country, um, and that. To explain that, I think we need to get into a lot of the stuff that we'll probably talk about a bit more later. But the way that I see it is that that party was never a particularly radical left-wing party. In fact, my my view, uh, looking at the history of the Labour Party, is that actually it is Australia's first properly nationalist party, if anything, right? right? Um, Because this is in the context of, like I said, conservatism being seen as being more closely affiliated with the empire. 
And the Labour Party actually split during World War One because the Prime Minister of the day, who was originally from the Labour Party, wanted to continue fighting the war, but the, the Labour movement didn't want to fight the war. So he split the party and created another party in order to continue to fight the war um, because, you know, Australia was perceived to be part of the British Empire. The British Empire is fighting. Australia should be there too. But the Labour movement and parts of the Labour Party did not agree with that. Um, so that's why I'm saying that, to, to my mind, while the gains for workers were really quite remarkable compared to other parts of the world, I think that it was also more of a real nationalist party, something that then other parties took on as well. Hmm. I think if listeners want to hear an analysis of uh, which has some echoes of that and in Britain, then the episode with David Edgerton um, that we did previously, which we'll link to in the show notes, could be a good um, good counterpoint. Um, what about liberalism, though? Or, or Tom, you wanted to to come in maybe on you know is is this the same in New Zealand? This kind of you know conservatism moving from an attachment to the British Empire to a more kind of what, what we might expect now. Um, comparing with other parts of the world, economically liberal, socially conservative, and the kind of Labour approach being more properly perhaps characterised as nationalist. Does that fit? Or I think yeah. Tom being a liberal would be very well placed to, to, <laughs> to talk about liberalism as well. Uh, absolutely. Um, I think I think as you, that's one point of difference as well between the two countries. And I have this pet theory, which admittedly has not been tested by extensive research, but maybe will be one day, that New Zealand is actually a much more liberal country than Australia is because it was settled by the Enlightenment Scots. Um, since the since settlement in you know, and it was quite a late one of the, the last actually the last place to be settled by you know by, by Europeans and at the start of the nineteenth century, um, it was settled by Enlightenment Scots and it always had a vision of itself as a very liberal progressive society mm. compared to Australia, which not completely but to a more to a large extent was settled by Irish Catholics. Um, and had that more that I think that's right. where that social conservatism comes from, um, and still still sort of permeates the, the the political culture. Whereas I think, yeah, New Zealand is a very strong liberal tradition. You know, the first sort of major reformist governments in the late nineteenth century, the twentieth centuries, were liberal governments, and they you know passed things like universal franchising, uh, began sort of written, you know the, the welfare state under a liberal sort of banner, um, and that's sort of continued throughout um, throughout New Zealand's history. Um, even as Labour emerged as a political force again in the early 20th century, it got, finally got elected in in the 1930s during the, the sort of the depths of the Great Depression and really turned into a sort of very much a mixed economy um, model during that time, similar to what the rest of the Western world was doing. Um, but Labour, you know, had 15 years, almost 15 years of uninterrupted power over the 1930s, 1940s, and really changed the structure of the New Zealand economy, at mm. least, which we'll get to shortly in a second. Um, and really put the, the sort of the forces on, on the conservative side, on the, on, the right, on the right of the political spectrum on the back foot. And when they finally got in after the, after the war, after the 1940s, a lot of that um, sort of you know, Labour's legacy remained for the next 40 years until the 1980s. Um, and then there the conservative was similar to Australia as that Shahar described. It was you know, more British than the British. Um, you know, but it was very much British. It wasn't English. It was very much British in the empire. Um, but also, you know, sticking with a lot of the reforms that had been passed. So I think overall the story is similar um, in terms of, um, you know, sort of the, the the political spectrum between between a right wing right wing national party as it's called mm -hmm. and a, sort of a social democratic uh, labor party. Um, but I think the, the the tradition of liberalism makes the country a much more socially liberal place, especially now. But also, as we'll talk about shortly, about the economic side. 
Um, New Zealand really dove headfirst into neoliberalism from the 1980s onwards, perhaps more than any other country, I think partially because it had that long-standing mm. liberal tradition. Just before, you know, moving on to, I guess, how to situate the countries with relation to, you know, Anglosphere or Australasia, um, Jahar, just in terms of the liberal tradition in in Australia, how's how's that developed? Um, you know, I guess we'll, we'll kind of come on to the tr- transition to neoliberalism, but I just wanted to to round out the picture a little bit because I think um, it's useful just to have this 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 background. Sure. Um, so actually, the most successful political party in Australia's history is the Liberal Party. Uh, the Liberal Party was formed after World War II um, by uh, Prime Minister Robert Menzies, who uh, actually was Prime Minister already in the 1930s, um, just at the start of the war. Um, but uh, that was in a different party. So he managed to bring together a number of those small sort of uh, cent- smaller centre-right parties and create a, a much larger party. He called it the Liberal Party. And he called it the Liberal Party for a reason, because he did actually see it as a Liberal Party, combining both what was at the time socially liberal attitudes. I mean, obviously, then maybe not quite as liberal as contemporary social attitude, but of of the time, but also more economically liberal than the Labour Party. Uh, Now, they govern after the war and, and they were broadly speaking Keynesian, you know, their leanings, right? I mean, we're not talking here about um, the kind of liberalism or neoliberalism that we get later on, uh, but they were definitely more liberal than uh, than the Labour Party, uh, more committed to uh, uh, freeing up markets, to, uh, you know, private uh, sector development and so on. Uh, but they also did a fair bit of uh, nation building in the post-war years, you know, built universities and all sorts of things like that. Um, and they also, broadly speaking, got... Um, most of the support from big business um, and also uh, from, you know, what they call in Australia the squatocracy or the old money kind of landed gentry types. Um, right. A lot of them supported that party. But that party began to change probably from around the 1990s um, and it has moved further to, to the right um, on social issues. Like I said, economically, it also moved further to the right, but that happened to the Labor Party as well. Uh, but they became more neoconservative under the prime ministership of John Howard. Um, and that's partly because he was going after people in the outer suburbs uh, that came, became known as Howard's battlers. Uh, these were people that previously would have right. supported Labour, uh, but he managed to recruit them in part by coming across more socially conservative than the people that became Labour's sort of main uh, voices. Um right. But again, you know, this is not as socially conservative as, as maybe what you get in the South in the United States or something like that, but, you know, by, by relative terms. Um, so that's where the party has gone um, and it has moved further in that direction. But even up until very recently, they had a prime minister just a few years ago, Malcolm Turnbull, very socially liberal person. Um, so these kinds of people remain in the party and there may be a handful of them still now. But the party has overall moved further to to the right on on many of these issues. So a lot of those more liberal people now probably feel more at home either in the Labour Party or as independents Mm -hmm. or maybe even in the Greens um, in some cases. To bring up to the the present day, we were talking about this a bit before we recorded, the kind of like painting a, a, a picture of the different kind of supporters of, you know, contemporary you know, parties or like movements within Australia and, and New Zealand. Um, this isn't like a kind of marketing thing where you need to have a, a pen pick and you need to kind of have like a cool like market segmentation. 
Um, but if you do want to do that off the top of your head, then, you know, do do feel free. But yeah, well, you know, I guess bringing it to the present day, what are the kind of, um, who are the main parties or political actors? What are their, like, who are their constituents, typical supporters? What what do they look like? How's that, how are the, how's that kind of arranged in, in, in both cases? Well, I think the, the thing that makes it kind of curious is actually that the picture I'm going to paint for you is going to sound remarkably similar because it's actually very, very similar to what you get in, in many Western countries today. So the Labour Party, yep, it still gets support from organised labour, but organised labour is not as much of a force as it used to be. Uh, it still gets more support from uh, the lower paid, the poor Australians than, you know, say the Liberal Party. Um, but... It also gets most of its support, um, or at least comes across as a relatively kind of PMC type party. You know, the, the people that they have in parliament, uh, the people that uh, lead the party, that's that's basically who they are. Yeah. Uh, they're lawyers, you know, they're uh, human rights uh, advocates. I mean, those kinds of people, some people from the union movement, but even they are very professional union organizers that always had their their eye on becoming politicians. Yeah. Uh, there's very few people from the shop floor that rise up in the Labour Party, um, which I think is very similar to what you get in the UK. Then you get and the Greens. You know the Greens UK, again. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, UK UK Labour Party led by a led by a lawyer, indeed. So, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's something that's uh, very familiar. And then the Greens are a growing force in Australian politics. And um, again, this would sound very familiar if anyone actually read the book, uh, At the End of the End of History. Um, you talk about the upwardly mobile and the downwardly mobile sections of the of the PMC. I think the, the Greens have a bit of both. Um, the best example for this would be uh, I reside in the electoral seat of Ryan, which is one of Australia's... Uh, better off electoral seats, um, I must say, um, and uh, our seats, uh, our seat was recently taken by the Greens. Um, now, that that is a seat that Labor could never in the, in a million years would have taken. Uh, it, it, it was always a Liberal Party seat, always on the centre-right until the last election, with the exception of nine months in its entire history of, of several decades. Right. Um, and it went to the Greens. Why? Because the Greens fielded someone a professional, a former architect, uh, or actually was it, she was an architect at the time, um, and she appealed to those kinds of voters. But then the Greens also have the downwardly mobile supporters um, who are often also of the PMC, educated, but they're more interested in things like redistribution and so on. Um, they, they care more about that kind of stuff, housing policy, those kinds of things, because they don't do that well, usually materially. Um and then the Liberal Party basically today gets most of its support. It used to get a lot more of its support from the upwardly mobile middle classes. But these days, most of its support comes from non-PMC middle classes and especially for small business owners. Um, so it gets a lot of support from um, what we call tradies here. I don't know if you use the term in um, in, in the UK, you know, people who are, um, you know, uh, have their businesses like they're plumbers or electricians. Um, yeah. and, and, and a lot of those kinds of... Uh, petty bourgeois type um, uh, pursuits. Um, and it's also trying to appeal to the poorer people, which tend to uh, live in Australia more in the outer suburbs of the major cities uh, because um, it, it perceives them as being more socially conservative than the inner city types, the kind of the real city people. So it tries to appeal to them. And then there's the National Party that they always govern in coalition with 
And that's basically an entirely rurally based party. So their voter base are people living in rural communities. I know that Australia has an image around the world of being a crocodile Dundee country. Maybe not anymore, yep. but actually it's one of the most suburbanized and urbanized countries in the world. So that right. population is shrinking. It's very small. Um, so their, their support base is getting smaller and smaller. Um, and I probably would be remiss without finishing uh, by talking a little bit about the rise of the independents in Australia, who are typically what we call teals, combining green interests with blue politics. Blue is the color of the Liberal Party. Um, so they're not interested yeah. in redistribution and all those kinds of things, but they really care a lot more about the environment and, and they're more socially liberal and, and, and those kinds of things. And they've taken an enormous number of inner city seats that were always liberal seats, always center-right seats, the, the richest seats in the country, with the exception of where I live, went to these people. Um, so that's, um, that's a major change in Australian politics. No, I think that that picture has a, so many similarities to the, you know, to the the British case, and I'm I'm sure a lot of um, listeners across Europe will will recognise a lot of that of that that pattern. Um, it seems like that's almost like the the, the default the the way that um, a lot of the kind of quote unquote Western kind of political systems seem to be um, fracturing at the moment. Tom, what about New Zealand? Is is it? Um, which I should I should stop the pattern of always like asking Shahal Australia and then New Zealand uh, after because that's um you know that's we should upend that that hierarchy which um might be perceived and yeah I'll I'll so I'll come to you uh, first on the next question but given I've already asked Shahal this question can't undo that uh, even with editing it would be just a bit weird um yeah so New Zealand is is that is it that same sort of you know familiar picture that listeners might might have or is it a little bit different yeah i mean look i think we new zealand there's no our place in the hierarchy so there's nothing new about bills being second behind australia but um in terms of in terms of the political cultures and, and sort of traditions yes they are very much similar to what shahar was talking about and to what uh your listeners will know around the, the western world you know we have the labor party which you know has some support from labor but not that much increasingly relies much more on the pmc and the sort of the actual people who are actually poor and rely on the state for, for welfare. Uh, we've got the National Party, which is um, you know, a mixture of, of business, especially big business, uh, the petty bourgeoisie, and also farmers, you know, because New Zealand basically is a massive farm, so the farmers are quite a big voting uh, constituency, much more so, or a bit more so than in Australia, I think. We've got the Green Party as well, which is, again, very similar social makeup to what Shahar was describing in Australia, but actually a much more politically consequential party in New Zealand than in Australia because of this MMP mm. voting system that I talked about earlier. The Greens have been in coalition governments with Labour um, in at least two, if not three, three previous governments um, over the past 20 years or so. So they've actually, you know, they've had Greens ministers and Greens um, MPs in, in the cabinet, in the cabinet room and actually being, you know, it's a sort of, it's normal that when Labour wins an election, they usually have the coalition party and that's 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 the Greens, whereas in Australia, the, the Greens and Labour just absolutely hate each other and can't stand aside of each other. So um, that's a bit of a different thing, but essentially they represent similar type of constituencies. 
I guess the one big difference, um, one big unique thing about New Zealand is the quite prominent role for the indigenous population in New Zealand, the Maori uh, population, um, which has been a political actor in New Zealand since the beginning, since settlement, you know, 1840 was when New Zealand was officially settled by the British through the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi between the British Crown and a number of Maori tribes. Um, and you know, unlike most of the treaties signed by the British uh, and colonizers elsewhere, this treaty actually held and it's still around to today. And it granted uh, the Maori equal um, you know, citizen status to, to, to the settlers. Um, you know, they were, they were um, you know, citizens of, of, of the Crown. Um, and very quickly after that in 1860s, um, New Zealand actually reserved four parliamentary seats for Maori uh, electorates uh, on which Maori could vote on um, and elect Maori MPs. So we had Maori MPs in Parliament in the 19th century, um, you know, which is something that took Australia about 100 years to, to catch up to. So the Indigenous population has been a much more active um, participant in, in the political process since the very beginning. Um, those Maori seats expanded to seven seats by the 1990s. They've mostly been held by the, by the Labour Party, which has a very strong link to to the Labour um, to, to the Maori community. Um, partially because Maori are also, uh, you know, were often very working class. You know, they were they were the labourers that moved from from the regional areas, from the rural areas to the cities during industrialisation. Uh, partially through its connections with Maori churches, um, it, it, there was a very strong link between the Maori communities and the Labour Party. Until the 2000s, where a number of um, sort of disagreements between some of the Maori MPs in Labour led to them to split off and, and found the Maori Party, which is essentially a an officially an Indigenous party in New Zealand, and that them and Labour sort of alternate between each other, between holding these Maori seats, these seven Maori seats, and being a political actor. Um, and the Maori Party, and I guess maybe probably the Maori community more broadly. Um, is a sort of a mixture of of social and economic conservatism. Um, so it's a, it's much more, it's sort of not the PMC type, uh, although increasingly sort of in, in the last few years the Maori Party has sort of started going down the sort of critical race theory decolonial uh, sort of route, talking about decolonizing New Zealand and and, and so on. Um, and, but overall, the Maori community, the Maori Party, is is more on the conservative side, um, has been on the conservative side both both socially. But also economically, so much more pro-state intervention, um, less liberal, and, and so on. Um, and then, like you know, like in Australia, which I didn't mention too much because I guess that's we're starting to get to our, our topic. There's a ragtag of populists and sort of right-wing nut jobs. Most of them don't really matter um, in either country. They're sort of you know um, we have our own Trump in Australia, and you know he's a bit of a joke really. Uh, you know he couldn't win against the legalized cannabis party, for example, uh, in the last election. So right. Um, the popular, the sort of the right-wing ragtag populists are not really a feature of, of either country's um, political system in New Zealand. That sort of the most prominent party was the New Zealand First Party, which is sort of basically a one-man vanity project uh, by a pol Maori politician called Winston Peters, who's strongly anti-immigration and strongly anti-Maori being on, on, on government welfare, uh, which is an interesting mix. And he's sort of been in coalition with both the Labour and the National Party over various points. Um, you know, he's actually the foreign minister under Jacinda Ardern's first government, which gives you sort of idea of, you know, he's sort of a chameleon that can fit in wherever, wherever, right. wherever he gets the baubles of office, as he once called it. Um, but, you know, there isn't sort of an insurgent populist movement in either country um, that, mm -hmm. that we have seen. And that's when we're starting to talk about the differences between how the Antipodes has experienced the end of the end of history and, and the rest of the West. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess you know, coming on to this, this is the main thing that we we really wanted to talk about. Is is I think the the way that the two of you sort of put it was that New, New Zealand and Australia seem immune to the end of the end of history dynamics, and you know, at the risk of repeating um, myself or repeating the the book. But on the other hand, the way to become famous is to repeat yourself loudly and often. Um, this idea of the end of the end of history is that this period 1989 to 2016, this was the end of history. Like all these political questions seemed settled. It was all third way, like Blairism or the regional variants of this. And, you know, politics was kind of quite um, predictable, perhaps, or it seemed to be for particularly <clears throat> the liberal establishment. And then 2016, centrally Brexit and Trump um, kind of destroyed this this uh, illusion or ended this period or um, certainly kind of capped off the, the populist um, decade and, you know, moved us to a new period now where all of those kind of um, technocratic approaches which had dominated in the end of history suddenly didn't really seem um, to be quite so so world historically universal. So that's the kind of end of his, end of end of history dynamics um, that we talk about in the book, and obviously listeners may have heard us talk about on the podcast quite a bit as well. Um, so yeah, Tom, I did say I'd come to you first up in that that hierarchy, um, but yeah, I mean, what? Yeah, could could you maybe give us a bit? You know, what have I characterised this this accurately? Um, is that the right word to use? That New Zealand, New Zealand, and Australia seem immune to this, to these dynamics. What's does, what's your kind of starting point, I guess, in in start in tackling this? Yeah, I think you know, and this is the reason we wanted to come on the podcast. To we're still trying to figure this out, and I think you know, I think we mentioned this at the start. We don't have a book or an article, or anything written. We are grappling with this to try to make sense of it. But our, our sense is that. The party's never finished. You know, the end of the history party is still going on in Australia and New Zealand. Um, and the sort of the morbid symptoms, if you wish, uh, to use that phrase, that are visible elsewhere around the, the global north, especially, but not just the global north, and just haven't happened in Australia and New Zealand. You know, so the two main parties are still as as stable and as maybe not as popular as ever, but still much as much in charge as ever. Um, they still rotate through, you know, in and out of office. Um, both in Australia and New Zealand, um, you know, we just had a, a change of government in Australia um, last year after nine years of, of, of the Liberal Party being being in power. Now Labour's back in after you know, nine years out of power. In New Zealand, National and Labour have continued alternating in and out of power. You know, Jacinda Ardern even won the very first um, majority government in the history of, of, of the MMP system since 1996. Um, we haven't, as I mentioned, we haven't seen any populist sort of massive challenges emerge from anywhere. Um, and Shahar can talk about this as well, but the, the the politics of both parties is still essentially quite centrist and quite technocratic. A little bit less so in the last few years of, of the Liberal Party government in Australia because, I mean, essentially they were just clowned by the end of it. Um, but, you know, in New Zealand, we had, um, you know, almost nine years in power of, of John Key, who was a former investment banker, um, you know, and he ran a sort of a centre-right, very sensible, very technocratic government, you know. The biggest flourish that he had was talking about changing the New Zealand flag um, to remove the Union Jack from it, and the referendum on that failed miserably, um, you know, because people were just like, what's wow. the point? Um, so, you know, this was around 20, 2017, I think, 2018, 
um, you know, and you could easily see how that would become a culture war sort of issue um, if, if, if that was the environment for it, but it never really just fizzled, fizzled into nothing. Um, the Labour Labour parties that have been in power in both countries in the last um, you know, in the last few years in New Zealand and last year in Australia, are essentially just replaying the third way hits. Um, you know, essentially the, the the sort of the storybook that you you you'll be familiar with from from the New Labour years in the UK and you know the New Democrats in the US, um, you know the, the Social Democrats in Germany under Schroeder and so on. We're, we're still doing all these things. Um, in fact, we believe them more more than any other Labour Party in the world, it seems, or that those more than any other two Labour parties in the world, which I should say. Um, Shahar can maybe talk a little bit about um, some of the sort of policy agendas that, that they've adopted in areas like housing or, you know, trying to finance um, various um, mm. various projects. But the, the overall picture then, just to kind of um, yeah. summarise, is, you know, political stability, major party domination, no real populist moment, um, centrism still reigns, technocracy is still the um, the order of the day. Is that, uh, Jahar, is that, is that about fair summary um, as a starting point? Oh, absolutely. When the Labour Party returned to power in Australia after being in opposition for nine years, um, firstly, they came back to power and a very small target strategy, as people call it, meaning that they, you know, didn't set out to make any big announcements so that they could not be pinned down for anything in particular. Um, and then now they're coming back with a raft of ideas for how to address some of the country's growing issues. One of them is housing. We can get back to that later. Um, it's become really expensive, unaffordable. Rent is uh, Rental properties are very hard to get. So how do they wish to address that issue, they, they're trying to crowd in, as, as we say, private investors um, into a, a housing fund that they created. Um, very few big ticket items, very few attempts to really uh, rock the fiscal boat. Uh, they already came across as more fiscally conservative than um, the uh, party that was in power before them, you know, the on the right. Um, they're now saying, look, you know, these are difficult times economically. Uh, we need to uh, make sure that we um, don't live beyond our means. So, you know, I mean, this is hardly, I mean, we've all seen this. We've, we've heard it before. Um, but that's the kind of stuff that they're running. Now, alongside that, and again, this is nothing unusual. Um, they have a range of uh, what you may call sort of like uh, soft left, uh, what something like a woke type. Uh, policies that they're pushing as well. Um, the the big one, uh, which is going to go to referendum this year, is the one uh, of the uh, voice for the indigenous population of Australia. Um, now, some people might be crossed if they heard me put it in those terms. Maybe some people feel more strongly about that, but I don't think the wider Australian public feels particularly strongly about this issue. Uh, but it's one of those kind of inclusion and diversity type issues that the party is interested in. Uh, in promoting, and, and that's how they uh, advance their kind of progressive uh, credentials, while at the same time right. on the economic side doing the same old thing. So yeah, I guess the, the question then, if that's if that's the picture, you know, what explains this? Is it as simple as there's um, you know an electoral system that we've already talked about, particularly in Australia, that you know makes it easy for the big parties to win government, and that's just you know that force of status has been sufficient to. Um, to, to prevent the end of the end of history, to inoculate um, the antipodes against it? Or is that a bit too simple? 
I think I think that um, that's the simplest explanation that you get, and lots of people will tell you that's the reason in Australia. Um, and certainly, um, I've heard a lot of people in other countries say that they should adopt similar things to what Australia has, meaning compulsory voting and prefer- preferential voting, which I mentioned before, because that breeds stability. So. Right. Um, when you don't have to bring against. out the vote, uh, the argument yeah. is that you don't need to uh, appeal to the base. You know, you can appeal to the center. I'm just going to rehash those kinds of arguments because people have said it a lot in Australia, maybe in other parts of the world, not so much. Um, so you don't have to bring out the vote. Preferential voting means that it's likely that one of the uh, candidates of the bigger party is going to be elected in every electorate. Uh, it's a lot easier for them to do that. Um, and consequently... Um, you just get that stability. And indeed, you know, it's not entirely wrong because the Labor government was elected with an absolute majority last year, but with only 30% of the vote. So it's not entirely wrong that that has a role mm. to play in stabilizing politics around the two major parties. Uh, and Tom can explain a little bit about why New Zealand shows that that's not really the case, that it's not in New Zealand, you get similar outcomes with a very different system. But I don't think that's a good enough argument, uh, even in the Australian case alone. And, and I think um, there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, firstly, we mentioned before the lack of success of Australia's populists. Um, Tom mentioned Australia's Trump, um, and um, <laughs> it makes me laugh even to think about him in those terms. But he did really try to pass himself off as this billionaire called Clive Palmer. He comes from my hometown of mm-hmm. Brisbane larger than life, um, and he had a, a series of campaigns um, and ads both on the internet and on the streets um, that basically kind of try to use that slogan, make Australia great. Uh, I don't think he said it again. Maybe doesn't think he was ever great, but maybe he wants to make it great now. Um, and he, he really took on a lot of that Trumpian language, uh, try to get people riled up. He also tried to get people um, to vote for him because um, of he, he thought there was a groundswell of anger around the uh, COVID restrictions. Um, and so he tried to kind of get people motivated around that. Uh, he spent, because he's a billionaire, he spent more money than all of the other parties combined. So he, right. he has a bit of that, to, uh, you know, in similarity with, with Trump. But as Tom mentioned, he got fewer votes than the uh, legalized uh, cannabis party, uh, which didn't spend quite that much money. Um, no. And none of the other right-wing populists... Not on the campaign, at least. Yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> um, and none of the right-wing populists actually did particularly well. In fact, there is an argument to say that the liberal and national shift to the right has actually been one of the main reasons they lost. They were seeing as a little bit too, to, too far to the right uh, for most Australians. Uh, currently, they hold only one state government, and that's Tasmania, which is the smallest state in Australia. And even the state government in Tasmania is trying to distance itself as much as possible from the federal party. They're trying to not be seen to have anything to do with them, you know, lest people associate them with the people in the national party. Mm-hmm. Um, and even those people within the, na- the, the the federal wing of the Liberal Party by the standards of the kind of people you get in the, you know, in the Republican Party of the United States, they are very tame, I'm telling you now. Uh, there's very few loose cannons among the ranks there. And second, you know, even though the major parties did lose a share of their vote, they lost most of their votes actually to um, you know, people like the Teals, 
who are, I mean, if you want to call them populists, uh, the, the, the most you'd get is techno-populists, but they're not even that. They're actually just people who want to talk about how politics should be cleaner and about uh, how they're like the epitome of centrism. Um, and Changes. all of them came from yeah. the, the safest seats in Australia. All of the efforts that people have uh, attempted here to import US-style culture wars have actually done very poorly. And just to give one example, there was a candidate in the, in the seat of Warringah, which is in Sydney. It's actually also one of Australia's most affluent seats. Um, but it used, it used to vote for the Liberal Party. Um, and she tried to campaign on um, basically like on a culture war issue, which is trans rights. Um, and that backfired very badly. Um, she actually, even though the seat wasn't the Liberal Party's before, they lost them already in the previous election uh, to an independent, <laughs> a teal independent, as they call them. There was an even bigger swing against them this time, and a lot of people attributed to, to that kind of politics, this attempt to bring in that kind of culture war issue into the polit political domain. It just doesn't work here. Hello, Alex here. That's the end of part one. If you like what you've heard, remember to rate and review this podcast and join us at patreon.com slash bungacast for Lenin, lamb meat, liberalism, and lithium. See you there.